Shabbat Shalom. My name is Noel. And as you guys can see, I am here with Miss Pamela tonight. This is a special night because two things. We are starting, uh, we've finished Bereshit, and that's Genesis. That took 12 weeks. I can't believe, uh, you know, as I say, like every week, the Torah portions uh, show little mercy. Right? They just keep charging ahead. They throw six chapters at you at a time. And you just are like, it's like jump into the deep end of the pool with a leg cramp, sink and sink or swim. Uh, try to get through it. Try to get as much information out. You know, cram it out as possible. And so we're starting uh, Shama Wath. That would be Exodus. And uh, I assume this will be another like about twelve week uh, portion. And so we're starting out right. We're bringing Pamela on. Pa Pamela is the, uh, the the translator of these Palo Hebrew uh, uh, books. And so. Pamela, uh, thank you for coming on. I'm, you can uh, you can come on every week if you want. I'm so happy that you're here, and I know a lot of people are are anxious to hear from you. So, uh, before we start reading this tonight, if there's anything you want to start out with, take it away. And well, uh, I want to thank you first for the opportunity. Um, I, I I just I owe a, a huge debt of gratitude for Noel to Noel and to uh, the Unexpected Cosmology Bookstore for giving me this opportunity and for publishing me. When I started, when I started um, translating, I started with the Psalm project. I started working with the Psalms and I never ever imagined that anyone would read it. I was doing it for myself because this was not long after I came to Torah. And I, when I realized that uh, Elahayam's instructions for righteous living were true and applicable uh, for us today, and I realized that I needed to know if this is true, if I need to be paying attention to the Torah, then I need to know what, what's really being said in the scripture. And I, I, uh, I started working with the paleo and and Noel was like he gave me this opportunity um, to 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 publish some of the poems first on his website and then later as a collection and so it was you know it was it's exciting it's been a, a little bit of a wild ride because some of the stuff that I've discovered is just um, it's been shocking and mind-blowing um, the difference between what you see in the paleo and what you see when you go back to the etymology of the words what's really being said and uh, so Bereshayath was a little bit more conservative than, than what Shamawath is so you I'm taking you on a wild ride with me so um, Buckle up. Well, Pamela said it first. I, because uh, I was working with Pamela kind of through her paleo translations, asking her a lot of questions. And I didn't know she was going to translate all of uh, Bereshith first. And when she handed in Bereshith, the final draft, I commented to her that I was like, wow, I feel like you kind of went a little conservative here. Like you could have gone more crazy with this. <clears throat> and, um, and so she has assured me that. Uh, uh, with Exodus, we're going to be, she's going to, you know, kind of go, go with the, the flow of the paleo a little bit more. And uh, it doesn't disappoint this week. I was, I was pleasantly surprised to, to see uh, uh, Pamela. Yeah. 
<laughs> you guys will see for yourself. <laughs> one of the things, <laughs> and one of the things I know that uh, Pamela and I were just talking about before we went live, uh, that is a concern of hers, is a concern of mine as well, is something we have uh, seen on the horizons. Uh, we've seen building. We have personally seen it in our community uh, with people falling away. And what happens is when a lot of people come over to the Torah, I, I don't need to get too too long-winded on this before getting started because we have a lot we want to talk about tonight, is um, there's this idea that uh, that Yahuwah or, you know, God of the Old Testament, that people come to this idea that he is Satan and that Satan literally made a covenant with Abraham, that he led them out of Egypt, that he gave them this Torah and that, you know, Jesus, he showed up to, to free them from that. And, and what's beautiful about this translation and what Pamela is doing is showing that it's like, no, 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 Yahweh, Yahuwah, or in the Paleo, Yahuwah is the son. He was always the son. The, the, the entity that the Allah Hayam who gave the, the Torah on Sinai, who led them out of Egypt, uh, who made the covenant with Abraham and going on forward here, what is the same Mashiach, uh, Yahushua HaMashiach. So uh, let's dive right into this. And um, I'm going to, because you guys know how this works, is that I have a lot of notes and I could talk for two, probably three hours. I cut it off at two hours. Uh, I want to give Pamela as much time as she wants tonight. And I don't know how much time she wants. Uh, I was trying to gauge this beforehand. So I'm going to try to reserve most of my notes for the end. Uh, once Pamela's kind of had her fill, I want to give her as much uh, time as possible. And uh, I mean, I maybe for selfish reasons on my end, because I want to hear what she has to say. We don't get on her very often. So um, I'll keep it as minimal as possible. But starting out, I want to talk really quickly about the death of the patriarchs. And uh, let's see here. How can I show this without having uh, the words blocked by the screen? Hmm. OK, well, let's see here. I just realized <laughs> I just realized I don't have a lot of space here. Let's do this. Boom! There we go. Okay, now we have more space. All right. So um, going really quickly here, uh, you know, the, the twelve patriarchs—they're all in—they're all in Mitzrayim. They're being—they're dying off slowly. Last week, I went through the testament of the patriarchs, and each one of these testimonies were given on their deathbed. We know that Yaakov—he had his prophecy for the twelve sons, and then each of these twelve sons—they also had their deathbed confessions. I went through most of those or portions of them. We see here, after announcing his last will to his sons, Reuben departed this life at the age of 125 years, and his body was laid in a coffin until his sons bore it away from Egypt and carried it up to Hebron, where they buried it in the double cave. All right. Same thing with Yehuda. Uh, he too was... Um, he says here, now none shall bury me in a cost uh, in a costly garment, nor shall you cut my body to embalm it, but ye shall carry me to Hebron. So that's kind of interesting how uh, Yaakov or Yasharel was embalmed, and here you have Yehuda saying, no, no, you're not going to embalm me. Just put me in a coffin, put me, you know, put me in eventually the bone box, take me back to Hebron. Same thing with Yishakar when he died. Uh, he goes back, Zebulun, he's carried to Hebron as well. Uh, Dan, let's see what he says here. Uh, having spoken these words, he kissed his children and fell asleep. Okay, well, it doesn't say what happened to him, but we're assuming that he was also carried back. Uh, let's see, Naphtali. 
Then he ate and drank with rejoicing, covered his face and died, and his sons did according to all that their father Natalia commanded them. Oh, yeah, no, he says he charged. See, I jumped to the end there. It says the beginning. Uh, Naphtali charged his children thus, and with many other lessons like these, he enjoined them to carry his remains to Hebron, to be buried there near his fathers. We see the same thing with Asher. He commanded them to bury him in Hebron. With Benjamin, uh, let's see, he fell asleep at a good old age, and they put his body into a coffin, and, oh, this is interesting, yeah. So, and in the 91st year of the sojourning in Egypt, so they've been there 91 years at this point. So he's over 100 years old. His sons and the sons of his brethren brought up the bones of their father in secrets. So we're learning some new information here. So we're learning for the first time that as these patriarchs are dying, they're being carried to Hebron, but it's done in secret. And buried them in Hebron at the feet of their fathers. Then they returned from the land of Canaan, and they dwelt in Egypt until the day of the exodus from the land. And these all comes from the legends of the Jews. And, of course, they're, sor I could, they're sourcing Jasher uh, here. Now, I am of the opinion at this time, uh, I find if I'm proven wrong, but I, I feel that this is actually Levi. When it's talking about the people going back to bury them, every single time it's a Levi. I'm going to be bringing this up a lot tonight because all the other tribes – sold themselves they allowed themselves to go into slavery levi never did levi is the only tribe that they're like nope we're not going into slavery and nobody seems to ask the question how is it that all of israel is in slavery and yet moshe and aaron are allowed to walk around they aren't told to go to the fields well they're the tribe of levi levi never entered the fields to work uh and so levi is the one that is able to go back and uh, bury the dead now with yosef it, it's a different story and this is uh, actually quoting from uh, Yasher this time around. And Yosef was 110 years old when he died in the land of Mitrim. And all his brethren and all his servants rose up and they embalmed Yosef. So that's interesting. So the other brothers are like, don't embalm me. But Yosef gets embalmed, as was their custom. And his brethren and all Egypt mourned over him for 70 days. We're seeing a replay with the Yaakov situation where there was, um, I think there was a 70 number, then the 40, and then the 7. And they put Yosef in a coffin filled with spices and all sorts of perfume, and they buried him by the side of the river. So he's the first that's not carried back to Hebron. He's put in the Nile. That is Sihor. That's what I guess they call the river. So maybe, you know, some people could argue it's not the Nile, uh, the wrong location. I don't really know. And his sons and all his brethren and the whole of his father's household made a seven days mourning for him. So there's that number again. We don't get the 40, but we get 70 and 7. And it came to pass after the death of Yosef, all the Egyptians began in those days to rule over the children of Israel. And Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who reigned in his father's stead, uh, took all the laws of Egypt and conducted the whole government of Egypt. Okay. Um, we'll read this one more passage. Um, oh, yeah. This is so back to legends of the Jews. So we read with Benjamin, they were taken back there secretly. Um, so here's what we read about uh, Simon or Shimon. Having completed his admonitions to his sons, and this is when he's speaking his last rites on his bed, Shimon passed away and was gathered to his fathers at the age of 120 years. His sons placed him in a coffin made of imperishable wood so that they might carry his bones to Hebron, as they did in secret during the war between the Egyptians and the Canaanites. So now we've gotten more information. They're doing it in secret. And I and I told you I think I think it's Levi that's doing it. I don't think I'm not so sure that the other tribes at this point 
maybe they haven't been sold in slavery yet. I'm not sure on the timeline, but I, I feel it's Levi doing it. They're doing a secret. And now we know added information. There's a war between Egypt and Canaan going on. Thus did all the tribes during the war. They took the remains, each of its founder from Egypt to Iran. Well, maybe that just saw the, the riddle for me. Maybe it was each of the tribes, but that's not the point. Only the bones of Yosef remained in Egypt until the Israelites went out of the land. For the Egyptians guarded them in the royal treasure chambers. The magicians had warned them that whenever Yosef's bones should be removed from Egypt, a great darkness would envelop the whole land. That's kind of interesting because that's referring to the, the one of the last plagues. And it would be a dire misfortune for the Egyptians, for none would be able to recognize his neighbor even with the light of a lamp. Um, yeah, so that's from Legends of the Jews right there. So one of the reasons, according to this, that they, it was actually the, the Israelites would have, uh, either Ephraim, Manasseh, uh, would have uh, taken Yosef back to be buried, but the Egyptians forbade it. They actually guarded it uh, because they knew that there was a prophecy that once his, uh, forget the other brothers, but once he gets up and goes, it's the end of them. All right. Now, this is a really interesting text right here. I'm going to read through, and I promise we're going to get into the Torah portions Real quick, this is all background to what we're going to go into today. And this is the visions of Amram. And this is Moshe's father. And this goes into what was going on with the burying of the, the patriarchs and the war between Egypt and Canaan. So Kahat went there to stay and dwell and build. So uh, this uh, Kahat, if I'm pronouncing it right, he is a son of Levi, making... Uh, Amram, the uh, grandson of Levi. And of course, Amram marries an actual daughter of Levi. So she marries her nephew. And that's, of course, Moshe's uh, mother. The hot went there to stay and dwell and build many of the sons of my uncle together. Uh, so this is apparently, this was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think, I'm not mistaken. Uh, it's been a while, uh, but uh, this is coming from Amram is giving his testimony. And I, I would imagine that a lot of these people probably gave their testimonies and probably very few survived. I mean, obviously, the 12 patriarchs survived. But So Kahat went there to stay and dwell and build many of the sons of my uncle together. A man as our work was very great until the dead would be buried. In the year of my beginning, when the news of a war became warring, so there's news of an impending war between Canaan and Egypt. With my consent, our company returned to the land of Egypt and I went to bury them, and they did not build the tombs of our fathers. And my father, Kahat, Kahat and my wife, uh, Yochebed, left me to stand and build and provide them with all their needs from the land of Canaan. I find this exchange a little bit confusing because it makes it seem like he's in Egypt and Yochebed's in Canaan, uh, even though we find out that he's in Canaan and Yochebed is back in Mitzrayim. And we stayed in Hebron, so now he's saying, you know, he is now in Hebron. While we were building, and the war broke out between the Philistines and the Egyptians, and the Philistines and Canaanites defeated the Egyptians, and they closed the frontiers of Mitzrayim. They closed the border. Can't cross now. So he's stuck. And it was impossible for Yochebed, my wife, to go from Egypt to Canaan for 41 years. So the, the father and mother of Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam are separated for 41 years. I mean, I've been married for... <laughs> How many years is that? 22 years almost? That, I mean, that seems like an eternity. This seems like a long time, 22 years. And you know, some people make it to the 50th or maybe even the 60th anniversary. But man, 
They're separated for 41 years. And we could not return to Mitzrayim. Therefore, we could not, uh, dot, 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 unfinished sentence, the war between Egypt and Canaan and the Philistines. And during all this, Yochebed, my wife, was away from me in the land of Mitzrayim. Uh, something about his post. He had to stay at his post. For she was not with me. And I did not take another wife. Quite the romantic. Something about women. We don't know. But uh, he apparently didn't take any other women. Uh, certainly not amongst the Canaanites. Of course, all the Hebrews uh, would have been back in Egypt. Um, that I would return to Egypt in peace and would see the face of my wife. So apparently he's looking forward to seeing her face again. This is where it gets really interesting. He said, uh, this is where uh, we see the watchers show up. He said, I saw watchers in my vision, a dream vision. And behold, two of them argued about me and said, so in this, I am of the opinion that the watchers are the, of course, uh, like reptilians. They're the Anunnaki, probably seraphim angels. Um, and so you're seeing here a good reptilian and an evil reptilian. You've seen dualism. They're, these two watchers are arguing. A righteous one and an unrighteous one. And behold, two of them argued about me. That's quite the thing you want to see in bed, right? You're having a vision and you're seeing these two angelic entities arguing over your fate. You're like, um, I'm right here. I can hear you. And they were engaged in a great quarrel concerning me. I asked them, you, what are you thus uh, something? What are you discussing or arguing about me? And they answered and said to me, we have been made masters and rule over all the sons of men. And they said to me, which of us do you choose? I raised my eyes and saw one of them. His looks were frightening, like those of a viper. So he's describing it like a snake creature, a viper. And his garments were multicolored, and he was extremely dark. And afterwards, I looked, and behold, uh, by his appearance, and his face was like that of an adder, which, of course, again, is a snake, uh, a serpent. And he was covered with, we don't know, um, but something was over his eyes. And uh, dot, 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 this watcher, who is he? He said to me, this watcher. So I think he's asking the righteous one now. Uh, he's asking the righteous watcher. He's like, who is this other dark serpentine watcher? And he said, uh, this watcher, his three names are Bilial, Prince of Darkness, and Milk, uh, Milkarisha. And I said, my <clears throat> my Adonai, what, uh, what rule? And he said to me, there's a lot of dots. If you're listening, I'm sorry. If you're not looking at the screen. And all his paths are darkness and all his work is darkness. And he is in darkness. And he rules over all darkness. And I rule over all light. That's all we have in this document. It's it's just a very mysterious document. I want to show this with you because it goes right into the birth of Moshe. And so, yeah, before he went back to Mitzrayim and had his... Uh, his three children, he had this wild vision of these two watchers who were arguing over his fate as he's stuck in this war. It's a really crazy scene. All right, so let's get right into this. Uh, Shama, I'm going to get this down, Pamela. Uh, Shama Wath, if I'm pronouncing that right. Shama uh, Wath. Shama Wath. Chapter Shama. 1, verses 1 through 22. I'll, get, I'll give this a read, and then I'm going to hand it over to you for uh, whatever first commentary you want tonight. The names of the 12 patriarchs. These are the names of the sons of Yashorel who came to Mitzrayim. The chief Yaakov and his family with him. You see Reuben, uh, Simon, or Shama, Shama Yuan, uh, Levi, or Lahuaya, and Yehuda, uh, Yeshikar, Zebulun, and Benu Yamayan. 
Dan uh, Naftali or Na, uh, Napathula. Yeah, you think I'd have this down by now. Gad and Asher and existed uh, and existed all the Nefesh proceeding from the loins of Yaakov, 70 persons. Basically saying that, yes, there were 12 sons, but they had children. So there's 70 of them all together going down to Mitzrayim. Yosef existed already in Mitzrayim. So I guess it's not uh, counting him and uh, his two sons. Uh, now, Yosef and all his brothers expired and all their children, but the offspring of Yashua were fruitful and became very, very powerful, and the land was filled with them. Then an unheard of foreign conqueror arose over the Mitzrayim who knew nothing of Yosef. And he, you know, that's, I would love to hear you comment on that too, because that's, that's interesting there that you put in foreign conqueror. Um, I don't have the Masoretic lined up with me, but I, does it say foreign conqueror in the, the Masoretic? It says a uh, well. It says a a a new or strange uh, Malak, but uh, Malak besides mean uh, king or messenger, it can also mean like a leader of an army. Okay. So he was he was a leader of armies. Okay. Uh, this person who came in. Well, this foreign conqueror, this leader of armies, knew nothing of Yosef, and he declared unto his nation, This people, the sons of Yasharel, are more in number and stronger than we. Therefore, let us deal wisely with them to prevent them increasing. For it is possible they might call out war and turn to join our haters and maybe fighting against us and expel us from Ha'aratz, or the earth. They consequently placed labor masters over them to force them to build and they built fortresses for Pharaoh, uh, uh, Fatham and uh, Ramasas. Uh, but the more they oppressed them, the more they increased, meaning they just kept uh, sprouting children. Therefore, they trembled and feared before the sons of Yasharel. Consequently, the Matsariah, or the Mitraeans, uh, Mitraeans, <laughs> Egyptians, uh, endeavored to crush the sons of Yasharel. So they embittered their lives by cruel labor in the forges and in the brick kilns and in every labor upon the land by every means possible trying to crush them. The king of Mitraim also summoned the midwives of the Hebrews of whom the name, the, of whom the name of the chief was Shapharaha, which is, is that, that seems pretty Seems to Yeah. It's very similar to like Sapphire. Okay. And the name of her lieutenants, how do you pronounce that? The name of her lieutenant? Fa Ua Aiha. I'm just going to have you pronounce all the names. This is great. <laughs> and he decreed when you cause the Hebrew women to bring forth, observe their children. If it is a son, slay him. If it is a daughter, let her exist. But the midwives feared Allah Hayam and did not do as the king of Mitzrayim ordered them, but preserved the children alive. The king of Mitzrayim therefore summoned those midwives again and inquired from them, why have you not executed the plan, but have preserved the male's children's lives? This is where Hebrew women get their reputation from, from this passage here. When the, uh, when, when the midwives replied to Pharaoh, because they are not like Mitzrayim women when in labor, but lively, so that they bring forth before the time that the midwives have come unto them. And so Hebrew women will still say this to this day, that before the midwives show up, many times the children are there. Therefore, Allah Hayyam showed kindness to those midwives. So the people increased and were very strong. 
And seeing that the midwives reverently feared Allah Hayyam, he fashioned to them houses. Pharaoh then commanded this people, declaring, Every boy that is born, throw him in the river, but let the girls exist. So I put a break there. And uh, Pamela, take it away. Anything you want to uh, talk about in this passage, or any passage for that matter. All right. Well, uh, we start we start at the beginning of uh, Shama Awath. And we have we have a transition. We've had this up until this point um, from the time of Abraham until uh, Jacob goes into Egypt. Uh, they have been nomads, tent dwellers. So now that they're living in a settled place in Mitzrayim, and uh, so these pet patriarchs, you know, the patriarchs passed on. And it says that their descendants became Pharaoh. So this means to bear or to increase with offspring. So uh, this is the same word used by Allah Hayyam when he says, be fruitful and multiply. That's what they're doing. And then like the Hebrews, they love to use different words to say the same thing. And it says they abounded, multiplied, sharats. And Rabaha, uh, it means to, that they multiplied, increased. They had much. Uh, in Genesis, in Bershayath, during the famine in Mitzrayim, uh, we know that the sons of Yasharel were provided for by Yawasaf, Joseph, and they dwelt on the best land. So they've increased they they have much and uh at some means that they they it means to bind up to tie up and it's if you can think of you know strands of rope that you twist together and this means it became stronger so they they were already strong and they became stronger you think of it in terms of twisting a rope or you take steel cables and wind, wind them together that's what's happening with the hebrews they're becoming they're becoming more they're stronger they're more powerful and of great importance so they're strong in number that is they became numerous and uh then we have this repeat of this word ba ma'ad ma'ad so that means very, very great. They became very, very great, and Aratz was filled with them. So we have this foreign conqueror who comes into the picture. Now, uh, the word here is Hadam, Hadam. And this foreign conqueror, he has no knowledge of Joseph, Yahwasaf. And he has no notion regarding the debt that Mitzrayim owes to. Yawasaf, Joseph, uh, because Mitzrayim and all these other nations survived because of the knowledge and wisdom that was given to Yawasaf. And the conqueror only sees, he's, he's, he's a conqueror, and so he only sees a potential threat because uh, he sees that they're, they're very numerous and they're very strong and they probably had great possessions because if you remember the uh, Mitzrayim had sold their possessions to get corn. They had sold their property. They had sold their cattle and uh, the sons of Yashrael did not. So they, 
continued to own property and they were settled in the land of Gashan. So he sees this threat. And so he decides he's going to eliminate this threat. And so he establishes leaders or commanders over the Hebrews. They, this uh, word here is Sharia, Sharia. And this means noble one, a noble one. And, you know, if you recall, that was Sarah's Sharia. That was her name. It means noble one. So these noble ones are really taskmasters. And they were, the Hebrews were forced into servile labor. They were afflicted, Ainuha, and uh, made to labor with burdens, Sabal, which were wearisome and laborious tasks. They made to, them to serve with Farak, which means oppression and tyranny. Uh, they had this, it, I, I put it in there, it's this idea they were trying to crush them. They wanted to crush them physically, spiritually, and emotionally. That was the goal, crush them. Well, when that wasn't really working, because we saw that the more they tried to oppress them, the more they tried to crush them, the more that they increased. So since when that didn't work, Pharaoh, he changes tactics. And so he orders the midwives to murder all the male newborns. But because the midwives fears Allah, feared Alahayam, the conqueror's plan did not work. Uh, they obeyed Alahayam rather than a human ruler. And he says that Alahayam fashioned to them houses. Now that word, Bathu Yatam, it simply means it's houses, but it can mean more than that. It's more than just a physical dwelling. It means that he gave them family, descendants, offspring. He also gave them property and possessions, wealth. So when finally uh, he says, Pharaoh says, he gives a command for all of his people. I, I, I found that was really curious. All his people. What does, what does this mean? Is he telling all of them to, in Mitzrayim, to, to murder, you know, throw your your children into the river. And you were talking about the word Nile doesn't really, it does not appear. It's actually Hayar, Hayar. And it just simply means the river. Um, most of the time they meant that to mean, you know, the chief river, the, you know, I guess the Nile, but it's not definitive. So I didn't put it in there. I didn't put the Nile in there. I put the river. So that's what it says, and that's so that's what I, I put. So anyway, my, my question that I pondered in this, I, I don't know how other people, I'm, I'm like wondering, did he give the order for all his people? Is it all the people in Mitzrayim, or is it just the Hebrews? And when it's talking about his people, is, it, is he talking about his as in the conqueror's people, or is he talking about his as in, Alahayam's people. So that's that's one of the questions that you know I've pondered. I don't really have an answer to that. So uh, I just I'm just telling you, you know, that's some of the things that I ran across. So back to you, Noel. To the yeah, uh, yeah. I kind of caught myself when I said Nile because just give context to that for a lot of the people out there in our circles who are 
investigating whether or not the land of Israel today, 1948 Israel, is the historical land of Yasharel. Uh, they're saying it's in other places. Uh, and one of the big arguments they bring up is that you can't necessarily take modern Egypt either or and give always give uh, you know the same sort of landmarks like Nile right like the Nile's not there it's just the yeah. river right it's, yeah it's just and the river you can't yeah. you can't say it's saying the Nile because it's, yeah. it's just not it's just not there well so before I start reading one of the things that really struck me let me see if I can pull up this uh foreign conqueror again uh, and an unheard foreign conqueror. This is really interesting because I, I was thinking about this today as I was going through the entire portion, is that we're going to get to it later tonight. Moshe tells uh, Yahuwah or uh, Allah Hayam uh, that, that his name, like who is he supposed to tell Pharaoh who he is because his name is not in the records there, if I'm reading that right. And that really struck me because I'm like, wait a second, Moshe, he's raised in Mitzrayim, so he knows that Yahuwah was not top there in Egypt, uh, I'm assuming, as a, as, a, as a god, as a Elohim. But the reason why that's so interesting is because if you go back to like the writings of Abraham, uh, the one of the pharaohs there, uh, according to that book, became a Mechilzedic priest. Of course, I'm of the opinion that Osiris and Isis, the uh, the original Osiris and Isis, the actual historical, were actually righteous, that they were not the the evil eye that we see today, uh, that they are actually friends with Shem and actually worked with him in Canaan. Um, and so, but then you even fast forward to Yosef, and here Yosef is in second in command, and he's, you know, he's had has a huge influence, and we see him just talking about Yahuwah, and that's his, that's his uh Allah Hayam. So you would think that there would be some knowledge of this, of this. Uh, Allah Hayam is God in Egypt, and it, he appears to be completely scrubbed. I'm just, my point is, it seems like this conqueror coming in, this new pharaoh, is like he's doing some serious scrubbing and uh, erasing uh, of, of Yahuwah. So, but we'll see as we go forward. All right. So, I wanted to re read really quickly here from Yashar. Uh, and this is, of course, for those of you who have read through Yashar, like, for every Torah portion, which is like five to six chapters, you have like 20 chapters in Jasher. I mean, it's just, you can't go through it all. But this is one of my favorite passages in Jasher because it talks about how, how the Israelites became slaves. I mean, we just, we kind of pick up in Egypt that they just became, um, I'm sorry, we pick up in Exodus that they kind of became slaves. We don't really know how, but this actually is, it's eerie because it shows how we ourselves today in the West, so I'd say worldwide, we also have become slaves and the idea is that you don't necessarily just you know get you don't get forced into it but you actually have to give your consent and so we see this generation after generation how we keep giving more and more consent to be ruled by the government you know going back to like was it 1936 or 7 with the social security numbers for example where the government introduces hey you could be you know you can get a cattle uh mark here you can have a social security number and you're going to get money out of this you know they, they bribe people and you know they just start doing this stuff so and all the elders uh this comes from yasher 65 as you can see and all the elders of egypt heard the counsel of the king and the council seemed good in their eyes they're having a conversation with balaam too and in the eyes of the servants of Pharaoh and in the eyes of Egypt, and they did according to the word of the king. And all the servants went from, I'm assuming this is the, this maybe that conquering uh, uh, Pharaoh, the new one that steps in. And all the servants went away from the king and they caused a proclamation to be made in Mitzrayim. 
in uh, Takpanches and in Goshen. Of course, Goshen is where the Hebrews are. And in all the cities which surrounded Mitraim, saying, You have seen what the children of Esau and Ishmael did to us, who came to war against us and wished to destroy us. That's a whole other several chapters in Jasher about the war with Esau and Ishmael. Now, therefore, the king commanded us to fortify the land, to build the cities, uh, and to fortify them for battle if they should again come against us. Whosoever of you from all Egypt and from the children of Yashua will come to build with us, he shall have his daily wages given by the king as he commanded uh, unto us. And when Mitraim and all the children of Yashua heard all that the servants of Pharaoh had spoken, there came from the Egyptians and the children of Yashua to build with the servants of Pharaoh, Pithom and Ramses, but none of the children of Levi came with their brethren to build. So there you go. Boom, right there. So we're going to start seeing Yashua go down the slippery slope of going to slavery. And Levi, they saw, they saw it coming. And they're like, we're not doing this. Uh, and I can only imagine they were warning everybody else and they weren't listening. And all the servants of Pharaoh and his princes came at first with deceit to build with all Yashuel as daily hired laborers. And they gave to Yashuel their daily hire at the beginning. And the servants of Pharaoh built with all Yashuel and were employed in the work with Yashuel for a month. And at the end of the month, all the servants of Pharaoh began to withdraw secretly from the people of Yashuel daily. It almost reminds me of like the deceit of uh, Yaakov marrying Leah. You know, he thinks he's marrying Rachel, but it's done out of deceit. And everybody else was in the know. They all knew about it. And Yashuel went on with the work at that time, but they then received their daily hire because some of the men of Egypt were yet carrying on the work with Yashuel at that time. Therefore, the Egyptians gave Yashuel their hire in those days, in order that they, the Egyptians, their fellow workmen, might also take the pay for their labor. And at the end of the year, in four months, all the Egyptians had withdrawn from the children of Yashuel, so that the children of Yashuel were left alone engaged in the work. They're still not clued into this, apparently. And after all the Egyptians had withdrawn from the children of Yashuel, they returned and became oppressors and officers over them. And some of them stood over the children of Yashuel's taskmasters, to receive from them all that they gave them for the pay of their labors. And the Egyptians did this matter to the children of Yashuel day by day in order to afflict in their work. And all the children of Yashuel were alone engaged in the labor, and the Egyptians refrained from giving any pay to the children of Yashuel from that time forward. And when some of the men of Yashuel refused to work on account of the wages not being given to them, then the exactors and the servants of Pharaoh oppressed them and smote them with heavy blows and made them return by force to labor with their brethren. Thus did all the Egyptians and to the children of Yashuel all the days. And the children of Yashuel were greatly afraid of the Egyptians in this manner. And all the children of Yashuel returned and worked alone without pay. And the children of Israel or Yashuel built uh, Pithom and Ramses and all the children of Yashuel did their work or did the work, some making bricks and some building. And the children of Yashuel built and fortified all the land of Egypt and its walls. And the children of uh, Yahshua were engaged in work for many years until the time came when Yahuwah remembered them and brought them out of Egypt. Uh, I think that's enough. There. There's, more, there's more to get to. I just want to kind of show you that, uh, uh, yeah, and it, it gets worse from there. It's like they start, um, and the Egyptians embittered the lives of the children of Yahshua with hard work and mortar and bricks and also in all manners of work in the fields. All right. You get the point. All right, let's move back to, oh yeah, this is really short. So this is getting into um, Amram. We already read from the, the testimony of Amram. So really quickly here, 
This comes from Yasher chapter 67, leading into the birth of Moshe. There was a man in the land of Mitzrayim of the seed of Levi, whose name was Amram. And uh, Amram, I believe, was the, the grandson of Levi, as I mentioned, but his wife was the, the daughter of Levi. So he married his aunt. He was the son of Kehath, the son of Levi, the son of Yasharel. So you see that Amram, Kehath, Levi, Yasharel. And this man went and took a wife, namely Yochebed, the daughter of Levi, his father's sister. And she was 126 years old, and he came unto her. So keep in mind, he didn't marry her at 126. I think that there was that huge 41-year uh, gap. So he married her under 100. Maybe she was like 80 or something. I don't know. But she was old at that time. And when he was finally able to get back to Mitrine, she's 126 years old. And this is older than, than Sarah, Sharaha, at this point. And the woman conceived and bore a daughter, and she called her name Miriam. I turned 43, uh, level 43 last week, and I have a daughter, and she is kicking my butt. I got, <laughs> my, my wife, Sarah, uh, we comment on this. She's kicking her butt. I mean, we're, we're feeling old. We're 43. We're not young spring chickens anymore. But yoga bed is in her 120s. So hats off to her. And the woman conceived and bore a daughter. She called her name Miriam because in those days, the Egyptians had embittered the lives of the children of Yasharel. And of course, uh, Pamela, you can attest to this, that Miriam means bitter, right? So yes. it's actually saying that she's born under these bitter circumstances. Yes. And there's a, it's an interesting theme, right? Because like uh, Miriam is, of course, the, the mother of Yahusha. It's the same thing. It was born under bitter times with the Romans controlling them. And the woman could go ahead. I was just going to say that you can see it in male and female names that that root word for bitter, mar, uh, is showing showing up. I think uh, one of the sons of uh, Aaron is he's got that mar in it, mar or something like that. And so uh, bitterness, like in when when you have the the Romans in um yeshua's time uh there was a lot of miriams then and here at uh during the time of uh Mashaha, you have a lot of miriams uh because they're because of the bitterness uh that they're having to you know live through yeah and she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Aaron. For in the days of her conception, Pharaoh began to spill the blood of the male children of Yasharel. All right. Okay, so I'm going to skip all this. You can look at these. I might come back to these pretty pictures later. Um, I'm just going to dig right into the text because I know I'll comment on it later if there's time. But I really want to give Pamela her time. So we're going to start reading, but right back in Shama Uach, chapter 2. We were at the chapter 1. Here we go. The birth of Mashaha, or Moshe, and adoption by Pharaoh's daughter. But there was a man from the family of Levi. He took for himself a daughter of Levi. This is what we just read through with Yochebed. And the woman conceived and brought forth a son. When she looked on his beauty, she hid him for three months. But being no longer able to hide him, she fashioned a boat of bulrushes and pitched it with pitch and resin and placed it in reeds on the bank of the river. There again, it doesn't say Nile, just river, the big river. 
But his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river, and her maids walked along the bank of the stream. I'll, I'll quickly state here and uh, that why was she bathing in the river? Because all evidence, if we're dealing with Egypt that we know today, all evidence points to the fact that they had baths, that they had bath houses. So what's probably happening here is that this bathing is a religious ceremony. Um, the, the, the Nile River will overflow, I think, usually in July. And you'll get the tropical rains in uh, is it Ethiopia. And then it comes down, it swells up in Lower Egypt. Remember, Upper Egypt is actually to the south. It's like backwards directions. Lower Egypt is to the north. It will come and swell up. And there, uh, the the Elohim of the Nile is Hopi, and you know it, they treated it kind of like, uh, you know, they like obelisk, right? So they kind of they treated it like, uh, well, ejaculation, basically, the idea that this Hopi Elohim is uh, bringing fertility to the land, and so they would in the flooding of the Nile is when they would go and do a lot of their spiritual. Um, religious ceremonies. Now, Jewish tradition states that uh, Moshe was born in the month of Nisan. I know, uh, Pamela, you have a different name for it. Uh, month of Nisan when Passover happened. But if this if this is happening when the Nile was flooding, which I suspect, it would have been more June, July, August time of the year. And so what's happening is, is she's going down to do this religious ceremony. And lo and behold, the 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 Elohim Hopi, the god of the Nile or the river, he's delivering a baby. When she looked on his beauty, she hid him for three months. Oh, yeah, I did that. Okay. Then the, uh, then the daughter Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river, and her maids walked along the bank of the stream. Now, she wasn't stupid. She knew that this was a, a Hebrew baby. And they noticed the boat amongst the rushes. One of the big giveaways is that the baby would have been circumcised. Now, the Egyptians circumcised as well. And the Egyptians circumcised well into Hellenized time, up in the Cleopatra. And it's one of the things that was commented on if you ever read the uh, the epistle of, um, I think it was the epistle of Barnabas. And he talks about this. Uh, but they also, they didn't circumcise at eight days old. So if you see a baby circumcised, they'd be like, okay, this is obviously a Hebrew baby. So she stretched out her hand and took it. When she opened it, she saw the lad and he cried. And she grieved over him and said, it is one of the Hebrew children. Obviously, she, they, she lifted up the blanket and saw, <clears throat> lifted up the skirt. Then his sister asked the daughter of Pharaoh, shall I go and seek uh, for, the, his sister would, of course, be Miriam, right? Shall I go and seek for you a nursing woman of the Hebrews so that she may nurse the lad for you? It's kind of interesting how... Um, she just kind of pops up in the scene. <laughs> the, the daughter of Pharaoh goes, and then Miriam just, poof, just pops up right there. And the daughter of Pharaoh replied to her, go. So she went immediately and called the mother of the child, to whom Pharaoh's daughter said, take this child and nurse it for me, and I will pay you the cost. Its mother, therefore, took the child and nursed it. When the lad uh, grew up, he was taken to the daughter of Pharaoh as a son, and she called his name Meshaha. Now, I wish I actually had, um, I guess I'll, I'm going to keep reading, but I wish I actually had the passage in Jasher where, interestingly enough, it, it, there's a passage where it says, like, Moses had, like, 12 names. 
I mean, depending on like his father named him something, his mother named him something, I think his sister and the Israelites named him something. But the name here, Meshaha or Moshe that we have, according to Yasher and according to this right here, comes from the daughter of Pharaoh. So that's really interesting. But it was long after this when Mashaha had become great that he went forth into his brothers and examined their condition. Then he saw a, <clears throat> a Mitri man, excuse me, <clears throat> striking a Hebrew who was related to him. Then he turned, so this man would be a, a Levite. Then he turned this way and that way, and not seeing anyone, he struck the uh, Matsarya, the Mitri man. And concealed him in the sand. At another time, when he was observing, there were two men, Hebrews, quarreling. So he said to the wrongdoer, why did you strike your neighbor? But he replied, who appointed you as a nobleman and judge over us? Are you going to murder me as you murdered the Mitraim? Ouch. Then Mashaha was afraid and said to himself, that affair is known then? The matter was also reported to Pharaoh, who endeavored to execute Mashaha. But Mashal had fled from the face of Pharaoh and turned to the land of Midian, where he rested beside a well. All right, Pamela, handing over to you. Do you have any thoughts on this section? Oh, yeah. Uh, now, first of all, if you'll notice, uh, we have this moment by the river. And again, like I said, the term here, it's, it's just the river. Now, um, it was, of course, very important, as Noel said, the the river was very important to the Mitzrayim because it provided transportation. It represented uh, the symbol of life and prosperity and merit to these Mitzrayim. And it also, because of the flooding of, of this river, it fertilized the crops. It made the land very, you know, dark and fertile. And because of this reliance upon the river, they uh, actually had all these different deities to, you know, they would worship these deities to ensure that the annual flooding of the river was sufficient so that they would have a bountiful harvest. Now, many of the scenes that we're going to be seeing, uh, especially in the confrontation between uh, Moses, Mashaha, and Pharaoh are going to be against a backdrop of water. And, um, and it's not by chance. Uh, I feel like this is, this is an epic contest between Yahawaha, the, the Elohayam of the Yashara, Yash, the, the, the children of Yashara, and against these deities, the, lowercase Alahayam of Mitzrayim. So this is an epic battle. And the first thing that we see is that we have these two, we have these uh, two daughters are present. We have the daughter of Levi and the daughter of Pharaoh. Now in the Aramaic Targum, of course, they identified the daughter of Levi as being Yochebed. And the other, the other, people who are present here in this first scene are females and uh, they're identified in English as handmaids or damsels but there is there are different words and there are subtlety subtle differences in the meaning of these words 
Now, the first one we're going to look at is uh, Nairaha, and this is simply just a, a young girl, probably an adolescent. And uh, as Noel said, they were probably worshiping. It wasn't just that they were going down, uh, we need a bath. No, they're, they're doing some kind of ritual, bathing ritual in the river. So we have Nairaha, which is a young girl or an adolescent. The next one we have is Amaha. Now, this is a woman, uh, we'll see this later in Exodus, where an Amaha is a woman who is sold into slavery for uh, the intent to bear children. Now, earlier in Bereshayath, uh, Hagar was given to Abaraham and Saraha uh, as a Safahaha. And this is a female servant with the intent that she would be a member of the family. Hagar was meant to be part of the family. But of course, uh, Saraha changes her status from being a member of the family to being a, a Maha. And uh, so she said that she would bear Ishmael for Abraham. And uh, this was also this this Safahaha. This is also what Bilhah and Zilpah were given to Rachel and Leah as a female servant, but that they were supposed to be members of the family. But again, it happens again. Their status is changed from being supposed to be part of the family to becoming an Amaha, which is a bond servant becoming a bond servant with the intent to to bear children. When Saraha, ex, she wants Abraham to expel Hagar, she's, she's talking to her, talking, and she's saying, you get rid of this Amaha, get rid of this female bond servant. So, uh, so Amaha is a female that's sold into slavery for the intent of bearing children, and it's different from a male servant. So uh, the next one is an Ilamaha. And the word here, it, that's what it, Miriam, the sister of Moses, is called Ilamaha. And this is different. This is a young woman of marriageable age or a young woman who's newly married. So Miriam here is not a child. She's a young woman of marriageable age, or she's just been married. And uh, like um, Noel says, she, she shows up, but I think it's the Targum that says that she had followed uh, the little ark, the ark in the bulrushes, to see what would happen to her brother. And so she pops up and she says, shall I go and seek for you a nursing mother? Uh, and when uh, the daughter of Pharaoh says yes. Then she says, uh, she goes and gets her Moses' own mother. And when he grows up, I don't know if this is when he's weaned or, or when, but he when he gets to a certain age, he's brought to the daughter of Pharaoh, and that is when she calls him Mashaha. And this word comes from the root mosh which means drawn out. Now, this is really important. I want to emphasize that he's drawn out of the waters. Now, um, 
as it said, uh, when he became great, now he knew who he, he he knew who his relatives were. He it wasn't like it, it was a secret. He knew who his relatives were, and so he goes out and he goes forth among his brethren. In the tar Aramaic Targum, it says, and in those days, when Mashaha he went forth to his brethren, and he saw the anguish of their souls and the greatness of their toil. So he observes that his fellow Hebrews are suffering. And when he goes among them, he spies a Matsarayah who is striking a Hebrew. Now this word is Nukaha. And this is not just, you know, a slap. This is not just a slap. This is a smiting, a striking with the intent to kill. So when Mashaha happens upon this Mitzrayim, person who is brutally beating one of Mashaha's male relatives. This person was related to uh, Mashaha in some way. So he's probably a Levite. Uh, so Mashaha strikes the uh, Mitzrayah. Uh, that's that word again, Nukaha. And he then he conceals the body in the sand. So we happen upon another day and two Hebrews are quarreling. And when Mashaha reprimands the wrongdoer, the wrongdoer replies, uh, and of course the Targum, the Aramaic Targum says this is Dason. And this guy, he causes a lot of trouble and controversy later. But Dason, who is the wrongdoer, he's the one who says, who made you, as in established you, as a, a Yashar, which means noble man, and Shafat, that is a judge, over us. Do you intend to harag, murder me as you murdered the Mitzrayah? Now, did Mashaha commit murder? You know, a lot of people I've I've heard I've heard preachers who preach that that Moses committed murder, did he? Well, now this word uh harag, it carries the meaning of not only just private homicide, but of an enemy who is killed in war. Now, the prohibition that we see later in Shamoth, uh, chapter 20, it says, no razah, which is more of what Cain did to Abel. It is the idea of crushing or breaking. And it is also re related to the word razaha, which means to take delight in or pleasure in. So, did Mashaha commit such a crime? Did he crush this person and take pleasure in it? Uh, that is questionable. Uh, I think he was probably, you know, defending his male relative, but of course it would have had to have been judged by the bearded ones, that is the elders of Yasharel. Of course, Pharaoh, the king of Mitzrayim, he certainly thought that Moses had done something um, worthy of death. And so he sought to execute uh, Mashaha. So that's my notes there on that little section. So back to you, Noel. Without going into any extra biblical books, it seems to me that Pharaoh was like, he almost saw like, I almost would read this to be like, he sees an opportunity. Like he, he wants to remove, he never liked Moshe. 
we're not talking about the prince of Egypt here, right? We're like two brothers, you know, type of thing. But like where he he never liked Moshe. It was a political thing. He's like, I got my opportunity. I mean, th think about this. I mean, you're you're a pharaoh of Egypt. You can kill whoever you want. You're one of his high appointed people. You can go out there and you can execute. I, I would think you could just execute justice. Right? You would. I mean, if you got if you got like taskmasters out there beating people, right? They're not going to be called in by pharaoh. Oh, that's you, you beat someone to death. You're being put down now. I, I just I don't necessarily see that happening. And so with Moshe, I just think, yeah, let's, we have our yeah, I think, I think you're probably correct because, like you said, he was supposed to be um, the son of the daughter of Pharaoh, which would have made him royalty. And he couldn't, you know, because she drew him out of the river, they would have thought that he was a gift from the gods, so to speak. And so it was probably a political thing. So it's like, oh, wow, here's my chance, you know, um, because it's like, uh, you know, as you say, he was seizing the opportunity. Probably it wasn't probably, oh, this is my brother and my friend. No, it was probably, oh, wow, this is a great opportunity to to get rid of this guy and well, have him executed. There, I could probably find passages, too, where it talks about, you know, that. You know, the righteous find company with the righteous, the wicked with the wicked, the wicked think the righteous are wicked. And so, so the idea is that um, they, Pharaoh had clearly known, they had clearly known that he was a Hebrew. They, they saw it from the time he was in the basket, pretty self-evident. Uh, but it was almost like that, that moment where they really truly realized, oh, you're not one of us. Like you're sticking up for the Hebrews. You're not one of us. You're a threat now. You got to be gone. Um, all right. So. Let's look. Uh, I wanted to look really quickly at the zeal of Levi. Of course, Moshe is Le uh, from the tribe of Levi. Um, and this is interesting here. This is in the Aramaic Targum. I'll just read what's highlighted here. This is where Moshe kills the man. Uh, now, this is according to the Aramaic Targum. It says, Moshe turned and considered in the wisdom of his mind and understood that in no generation would there arise a proselyte from that, Mitch, uh, that Mitri man. And that none of his children's children would be ever be converted. I kind of think that's a little interesting because, well, not just a little, it's very interesting because we I've been over this several times before that the same thing happens when Alahayam approaches uh Cain after killing Abel, and it's this idea that that I now many voices have been silenced that are expected in generation after generation after generation. So according to this passage, Moshe in this moment is seeing the same thing where he's seeing that there's going to be all these generations coming from this wicked man and not one of them are going to be righteous. Uh, so a little interesting there. All right. The next comes from, this is the Testament of Levi. And we're going to see that he also kind of uh, similar things happening with him. And I slew Shechem first. I, I actually went over this last week. And I, this is with the, the rape of Dinah, his sister. Uh, and I slew Shechem first, and Simon slew uh, Chamor. And after this, my brothers came and smote that city with the edge of the sword. And my father heard these things and was wroth. And he was grieved in that they had received the circumcision. And after that had been put to death. And in his blessing, he looked and missed upon, me, upon us. So if you recall, when Yaakov is dying, uh, he and his brother, those were the two. He kind of, to his dying day, he he looked down on what they did. For we sinned because we had done this thing against his will. And he was sick on that day. And I find that fascinating. So in 
Levi here, he's like, what Levi is still to his dying day. He's like, this is a righteous thing that we did. It was sin because we went against our father's will. But, um, but as you can see here, verse six, verse six, but I saw that the sentence of Elohim was for evil upon Shechem for they sought to do to Sharaha or Sarah and Rivka as they had done to Dinah, our sister, but Yahuwah prevented them. So in, in the same sense, when he goes in and kind of like Moshe, according to the Aramaic Targum, when Levi is going in and just massacring the city of Shechem, he's having the same sort of divine vision where he sees all their evil thoughts and you know how wicked they truly are. He can like see into their heart. And so um, kind of going back, I guess, Pamela, what you're saying is that I guess that's the big difference, right? Between killing and murder, right? And it's the intents and all that. So yeah. All right. So this comes from uh, Numbers 25. And this is Phinehas. Who is Phinehas? He is the grandson of Aaron the priest, another Levite. Famous scene. This, of course, includes um, uh, uh, Balaam um, finally trying to curse Israel uh, or cause them to sin, more like it. Um, he had to actually bless Israel in the end. And behold, one of the children of Yashua came and brought into his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moshe and in, in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Yashuel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the, congreg uh, from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. Long story short, he, ru he runs the javelin through the man and the woman and uh, thrusts them about the camp. Another interesting scene happens in 1 Maccabees chapter 2. And in those days arose uh, Mattathias. This is the, uh, he's the son of Yochanan, the son of Stimian, a priest of the sons of Yoreb from Jerusalem. So he is a Levite. Uh, he has five sons, Yonan called Caddis, uh, Simon called Thassi, Yehuda, who was called Maccabees, like Yehuda Maccabees. Eliezer and Jonathan. And uh, I want to skip ahead here to the scene. So uh, so we know he's a very zealous man for the Torah. He's a Levite. Now when he, so this, uh, this governor, this Greek governor, uh, Alexander the Great dies. You know, the, the kingdom is divided up. This uh, bad dude comes in and he said, um, well, let me see. I'll start here. So uh, let's see, in the, in the meanwhile, the king's officers, such as compelled the people to revolt, came into the city of uh, city Moden to make them sacrifice. So the king's officers are coming in now and he wants them to sacrifice uh, an unclean sacrifice to an Elohim other than Yahuwah, uh, either to the king or to any of their gods. And when many of Yashua came unto them, Mattathias also and his sons came together. So the sons of the, of the Maccabees. Then answered the king's officers and said to Mattathias on the wise, thou art a ruler and an honorable and great man in the city. So he looks straight at him, this very zealous Levite. He, he, he wants to make an example out of him. And strengthened with sons and brothers. Now therefore come thou first and fulfill the king's commandments, like as all the heathen have done actually calls them the heathen, the goyim. Yea, and the men of Yehuda also, and also as remain at Jerusalem. So he's saying, look, all the other, all the other Jews have done it. They've all, they've all done this now. They've all sacrificed 
just it's your turn now. Just set an example for everyone. You're a great man, and then more will follow your example. So shalt thou and thy house be in the number of the king's friends. And thou and thy children shall be honored with silver and gold and many rewards. Then see that would just that would just take me off. That would cause me to it like like he might have me until he said uh that you'd be numbered amongst the king's friends. You have gold and silver and many I'd be like, that's it, I'm revolting. Then Mattathias answered and spoke with a loud voice. Though all the nations that are under the king's dominion obey him and follow away everyone from the religion of their fathers and give consent to the commandments, yet will I and my sons and my brethren walk in the covenant of our fathers, and that'd be the covenant of Yahuwah. Uh, Allah Hayam forbid that we should forsake the Torah and the ordinances. We will not hearken to the king's words to go from our religion, either on the right hand or the left. And this is the interesting thing here. He just, he's incessant when he sees this happen next. He just said, I am not selling out the Torah or my covenant with Yahuwah for gold or riches or fame or friendship with the king or anything, which was all empty promises anyways. Now, when he had left speaking these words, there came out of the Yahudim in the sight of all to sacrifice on the altar, which was at Modim, according to the king's commandment, which thing when Mattathias saw, he was inflamed with zeal. So he sees this other man just step right up there to make the sacrifice. And his reins trembled, neither could he forbear to show his anger according to judgment. Wherefore he ran and slew this man upon the altar, just like Phinehas. Also the king's commissioner who compelled men to sacrifice, he killed at that time, and the altar he pulled down. And then all hell breaks loose, and we get into the Maccabean revolt. All right. So let's continue. Oh, oh yeah, one more thing I wanted to talk about here. Um the raw, you know, I'm going to wait on this. Ah, you didn't see that picture. All right. Uh, <laughs> Shama, Shama Yuath, chapter 2, 16 through 6, 1. Um, I'm going to go ahead and um, I'll, I'll break I'll break it up, Pamela, and we'll see what notes you have. It happened that the priest of Midian had seven daughters. As you recall, Moshe is now on the run. And if you <laughs> if you read Yasher, there's like, there's like probably 10 to 20 chapters in here where Moshe lives the life of Forrest Gump. And he goes like, he becomes like the king of this whole country and all the, just tons of stories in there. And so finally he is now, he, he goes off, he's no longer king of this other country. And he goes off to the priest of Midian. And remember now Midian was one of the sons of, Abraham with uh what was her name Pamela his uh, after Keturah. Keturah. Keturah, yeah Midian Keturah. is one of, one of their sons so now which is kind of interesting because I uh, speculate that Kathura was a um uh that according to the Jewish tradition uh she was uh Hagar with a new name uh I don't really buy that it could be true I I take it well, uh, the name we think of it as a name, Hagar. It's it's not a name. It means the stranger. It's not a name. So they've been calling her in Bereshayath. They call her Hagar, Hagar, Hagar. And we see it when uh, Meshaha names his son. He names him Garasham, which is stranger. The, the root word of that is Gar, which is stranger. And so... Her name might have been Kathura because it, it's not really given in Bereshayoth. It's Hagar, the stranger. It's not a name. It's just a, um, I guess, as a description. 
so yeah, it could be. Yeah, um, yeah. I put there. Polly, I put Katura there, and but then when I'm live on the spot, I don't know. I, don't, I can't always remember all the names. So, anyways, uh, the point was is that uh, it, it's possible too that she came from Abimelech, uh, a daughter of Abimelech, and um, that comes, of course directly from the writings of Abraham, which would mean that Abimelech, according to that text, was a Melchizedek priest. And so is it possible that the priest of Midian is a continuation of the Melchizedek priesthood? Just throw that out there. I don't know. I wasn't there, but it's something I think about. And these girls came to draw and fill the watering troughs to give drink to their father's sheep. I think this is one of those great scenes where I can see Charlton Heston, like, you know, <laughs> jumping in to save the day to save the beautiful young daughters of the priest of Midian. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Mashaha stood up and delivered them and watered their sheep. So when they returned to uh, Reuel, their father, he asked, how is it that you have returned so quickly today? They answered him, a, matra, uh, a, mats, uh, a Mitzrayim man protected us from the hand of the shepherds and also drew and gave water to our sheep. Then he replied to his daughters, where is he? Why have you left the man there? Invite him and let him eat bread. Then Meshaha began to stay with the man who gave uh, Zepharaha, or we know as Zipporah, his daughter to him. And she bore a son, and he called his name Gerasham. For, he said, I am a stranger in a foreign land. A long time after these events, the king of Mitrim died. But the children of Yashuel were still oppressed in their servitude, and their cries from their slavery reached Alahayam. Alahayam therefore remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Yitzhak and with Yaakov. Therefore, Alahayam looked upon the children of Yashrael and Alahayam revealed himself. Mashaha, however, was shepherding the sheep of Jethro, his father in law, the priest of Midian, and he had led the sheep to the far side of the desert and came to the mountain of Alahayam in Charabaha, where uh, Malak, uh, Malak, like a kind of like the angel or messenger, Malak Yahuwah, the ever living, appeared unto him in a flame of fire. Now I'm going to read this whole passage, and this is I am definitely going to be. I kind of threw my hands up in the air when I was. I do every time I study this. I'm like I don't know what's going on. Um, so I'll be interested to hear how you dissect this panel. Uh, anyways, he appeared unto him in a flame of fire in a thorn bush. Now I'll quickly point out. Uh, you can see Pamela puts a little number one here. So let's read the bottom of the page. What it says. The word in Paleo-Hebrew, senuha, means tooth or crag. A more appropriate translation would be thorny crag. So we say it's a thorny bush, but Pamela is saying it should be a thorny crag. So we think of crag like a kind of like a jagged, rocky cliffside. It has been traditionally translated as bush, which is possible considering the word begins with the Paleo-Hebrew samak. If the English word bush is used, then it should be interpreted as thorn bush. All right. Got to go back up here and find that number one again. When he looked, he observed that the thorn bush burned with fire, yet the thorn bush was not consumed. Then Meshaha declared, I will draw near and examine this great wonder, why the thorn bush is not burnt up. But Yahuwah saw that he approached to examine it. So Ha'alahayam called out to him from the midst of the thorny crag. Let's see if we can see number two here. Sometimes translated from the midst of the bush. Okay. So she put here, uh, it, it could be, usually it's, it translates to me from the midst of the thorny bush, but Pamela says that Ha'alahayam called out to him from the midst of the thorny crag and said, Mashaha, Mashaha, and he answered, I am here. Now, 
I'll quickly remind you that the other two times this happened in Bereshith, one was to Abraham, and uh, I think it's Yahuwah who calls out to him there. It could be uh, uh, Allahayam, but he says, Abraham, Abraham, and he says, I'm here. And immediately we learn that he has to uh, be put to the test with uh, Yitshak, right? So anytime you you get like the name calling and then the response, I'm here, it's a big deal. Uh, the other time is with uh, when he, Yahuwah, appears to Yaakov and he says, I am here. So if that happens to you and you hear the most high call your name out and you say, I am here, be prepared for some, something big. Then he said, approach not. Put off your shoes from your feet for the place upon which you stand is Kudash. Then he continued, I and Alahaya of your father, the uh, Alahaya of Abraham, the Alahaya of Yitshak, and the Alahaya of Yaakov. Then Meshaha hid his face, for he feared to gaze upon Ha-Alahayam. Yahuwah then said, I have seen the suffering of my people who are in Metrim, and I have heard their shrieks before their drivers, and I have understood their sorrows. And I have come down to deliver them from the hand of Matarah, and to take them up from that country to a good land, and a spacious, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to replace the Canaanites and the Chathuya and the Amariah and the Amorites and the uh, Pharisiah, that would be the Philistines, I believe, and the Chahua and the Yabba for the, uh, maybe Pamela on her, when she comes, she could pronounce this properly. For the cries of the children of Yashorel have now come to me, and I have seen the oppression which with which the Matsarya oppressed them. Uh, therefore, you must go, and I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the children of Yashorel, up from among Mitraim. But, but, uh, but uh, I was going to say Moshe, but Mashaha, I still want to say Moshe, but, but Mashaha replied to Ha'alahayam, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I, I actually love that there because it's like Mashaha, like he obviously, the, the, to answer the question, I mean, it, it's like, well, you were raised, duh, you were raised in the court of Pharaoh, so you're like the best guy to go. Uh, but that's not really what he's saying there. I think this is like true humility where he sees himself as like a nothing. He's like, I, like, who am I? Like, yeah, even though like I was like, you know, in the court, right? I was there with Pharaoh. Like, I, I'm a nobody. I think that's what he's saying there. Um, and I don't think he's self-consciously trying to be humble. I think there's just like, just he's in the, you're, you're in the presence of Allah Hayam, right? And so you just, the truth comes out. And that I should lead the children of Yashorel up from the midst of Mitzrayim. He answered, however, because I will be with you. So to answer your question, yeah, you're a nobody, but I'm going to be with you. And that's going to make you a somebody. Therefore, go. For I have sent you to lead the people from Mitzrayim, and they shall serve Allahayam upon this mountain. Then, then Mashaha said to Ha'alahayam, Supposing I should go to the children of Yasharel and should say to them, the Alahiah of your fathers has sent me to you, and they should ask me, what is his name? What am I to say to them? And Alahiah declared unto Al-Mashaha, Ahiyaha, Ashar, Ahiyaha. Hopefully I got that right, Pamela. And there's a note there, number three. I will exist because I will exist. And of course, most translations will say, um, I am that I am, but 
I will exist because I will exist, which is a great name uh, for the father, isn't it? Just it, it's like a name that you can't even you can't even really the way I take it. Uh, Pamela might have other thoughts, but the way I take it is that the father has a name that you can't even you can't even define his name with the name almost. It's just it's like his name is just beyond any meaning. It just it's like like I am that I am. I you know I exist. Um, so um, there's no other really better way to describe him. Uh, let's see, and then we get the name. Uh, wait, what was it? What was it? Okay, like this, therefore, you shall say, Ahayaha has sent me to you. And Allahayam further spoke to Mashaha. You shall say thus to the children of Yasharil, Yahuwaha, the ever living Alahaya of your forefathers, the Alahaya of Abraham, the Alahaya of Yitshak, and the Alahaya of Yaakov has sent me to you. This is my name to, to time of long duration. And I remember this from age to age. Go and assemble the chiefs of Yasharil and say to them, Yahuwaha, the ever-living Allahiah of your fathers, has appeared to me, the Allahiah of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And he declared, I have visited you, and I will save you from the Mitzrayim, from the Mitzrayah. Therefore, I command you to go from among the Mitzrayim, uh, the men of Mitzrayim, to the land of Canaan, and the Chathuia and the Amariah, uh, the Amorites, and the uh, Pharisiah, and the Chagoya, and the Yabayuasaya, to a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. Then go you and the chiefs of Asherel to the king of Mitzrayim, and say to him, Yahuwaha, the ever-living Alahaya of your servants, has commanded us. Therefore, we pray, let us go three days journey into the uh, Matabar, and I think the note there for number four is just wilderness, and offer sacrifices to Yahuwaha, our ever-living Alahaya. But I know that the king of Mitzrayim will not permit you to go except by a strong hand. Consequently, I shall stretch out my hand and strike the Mitzrayim with all the wonders that I will do within their bounds, and afterwards he will send you away. Then I will give this people favor in the eyes of, the, uh, of Mitzrayim, so that it shall be when they walk, they shall not walk unprovided. But every woman shall demand of her neighbor and from the guests in her house ornaments of silver and ornaments of gold and clothing and put them upon her sons and daughters and shall strip the matzah. Then Mashaha answered and said, but they may not trust me and not listen to my voice. For they may say, we have never observed Yahuwah the ever living your owl. Allahayam, this is where I'm saying that it seems to me like there was like a scrubbing in Egypt, uh, where by the time, I mean, they just had Yosef and already the, the Egyptians are like, Who, who's this guy? Who's this, this Elohim talk about? Allahayam, however, asked him, what is in your hand? And he replied, a stick. And he then commanded, throw it to the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a nakash or a serpent. And Mashaha fled from before it. I'm, I have to say that uh, after all the, the the research I've been doing on Leviathan recently and the serpents and the, the seven-headed serpent uh, creature, that really tripped me out, especially when, you know, understanding what this this uh, the staff is that he threw down the came in the cash. Perhaps it is a discussion for another time. And Mashaha fled from before it. <laughs> I love that. It becomes a snake and he like he runs away into the into the the uh, thorny crag. 
But Yahuwah, the ever-living, said to Mashaha, stretch out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and seized it and became a stick in his hand. I'd be like, I'd be like covering my eyes and like holding my hand out there. I, I can't stand snakes. Snakes are like the worst thing ever. That making the that the vision of uh, Moshe's uh, father like a total nightmare with the two watchers, with the uh, with the asp. Be certain they will believe because of that that Yahuwah, the ever living Allahiah, other fathers appeared to you, the Allahiah of Abraham, the Allahiah of Yitzhak, and the Allahiah of Yaakov, and Yahuwah, the ever living, continued speaking to him. Put your hand now into your bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom, and when he lifted it out, behold, his hand was struck with leprosy, as white as snow. And he commanded, put again your hand into bosom again. So he replaced his hand in his bosom and took it out again from his bosom and it returned like his other flesh. And it shall be that if they will not trust you and not listen to your voice at the first evidence, yet they will trust to your voice after the second sign. But if they do not trust you, even for the second evidence, and do not listen to your voice, then take some of the water from the river and pour out on the dry land, and there the water which you have taken from the river shall become blood on the dry ground. Mashaha, however, replied to Yahuwaha, the ever-living, but yet Adoniah, I am not an eloquent man. I have not been so in the past, nor in this speaking between you and your servant, for I am slow of mouth, difficult to speak, and heavy of tongue, difficult to understand. Now, I'm going to hand it over to Pamela, but really quickly, I have here this passage. This is a very short passage in Jasher, uh, just to comment on his slowness of mouth. And this is what we read. And the, the, the context here is that Moshe is a little baby. He's there in front of, uh, uh, he actually reaches for Pharaoh's crown, which is a huge naughty no-no. And the whole court, including Balaam, is like, yeah, that's going to be a problem. Uh, and so they're trying to figure out what to do with Moshe. And so we see this, and the, and the king ordered the onyx stone and coal, and this is burning coal, to be brought in place before Moshe. And they placed the boy before them to see what he would do. Would he go for the stone? They're trying to figure out if he's intelligent, like if, if he reached for the crown uh, just because it was there or because he reached for it because he wanted to rule. And they placed the boy before them, and the lad endeavored to stretch forth his hand to the onyx stone. Not good. I think he would have been put to death if he would have done that. But the angel of Yahuwah took his hand and placed it upon the coal, and the coal became extinguished in his hand, and he lifted up and put it in his mouth and burned part of his lip and part of his tongue, and he became heavy in mouth and tongue. And when the king and princes saw this, they knew that Moshe had not acted with wisdom in taking off the crown from the king's head. So the king and princes refrained from slaying the child, so Moshe remained in Pharaoh's house growing up, and Yahuwah was with him. That comes from Yasher 70. Um, well, let's see. How much further do I have here? Um, hmm, it keeps going on. Let me just go ahead and I'll read through the whole thing and then let uh, Pamela comment. But Yahuwah, the ever-living, replied to him, Who gave a mouth to man? Or who, may, who makes dumb or deaf? Or blind or seeing? It is not I, Yahuwah, the living one. So now go, and I will be with your mouth and show you what you shall say. But he answered, Indeed, my Adon, sinned, I pray you, by some other hand. Then Yahuwah the ever-living was angry with Mashaha, and he said, Have you not a brother, Aaron the Levite, or the La I know that he can talk. He is even now coming to seek you. See that you can go cheerfully with him, and speak to him, and put words into his mouth, for I will be with your mouth and in his mouth, and will show you what you are to do, and he shall speak for you to hit the people. He shall be like a mouth for you, 
and you shall uh, be to him of Alahayam, and that staff, take it in your hand, for you shall perform wonders with it. Um, okay, so, okay, Mashaha therefore went and returned to uh, Yather, his father-in-law, in law that would be Jethro, and said to him, I wish to go now and rejoin my relatives who are in Mitrim, and I will see if they are alive. And Yather said to Mashaha, walk to Shalayuam. And let's let's see here, number six. The word Shalayuam has a depth, a great depth of meaning, wholeness, health, prosperity, peace, and friendship. All right, I'm going to... I think that's a good cutting off point. I'm going to hand it over to you, Pamela, to uh, give your interpretation of this. All right. So uh, can you hear me good? I can hear you. Okay. All right. So um, I'm going to just jump right into the controversy because uh, this is going to be kind of um, some controversial words. Uh, Meshaha, he comes to the mountain of Alahayam. Now he's shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. And as I said, it's going to be a controversy to some people because uh, I, I'm going to be tackling, number one, um, the names. We'll be talking about some of the names. But also tonight, some people are going may get upset about one of their cherished scenes in Scripture, namely the burning bush. Now, they're at Harabaha, which is Horeb. Now, this is Sinai. This is Mount Sinai. And we are in the same location where Mashaha will return later, later on in Shamath. Uh, this time he will be shepherding, but he'll be shepherding the people of Yasharal. Now, this Hebrew word that we talked about uh that's translated as bush is sanuha, sanuha. And um, it can mean bush, but if it means bush, it would be thorn bush. But uh, it can also mean thorny crag or to lift up, elevated, or to be sharp. Now, if we view this through the lens that all of this is thorny crag, it's not bush, then it is a, a thorny crag that is elevated lifted up or sharp. Now, if we put this, we couple this with this next word, flame of fire. This word for flame is lahab, lahab. Now, this word for flame of fire is, it's defined as the flashing point of a spear. So, uh, we put these together and we have a thorny crag that's lifted up, elevated, sharp with a flame like the flashing point of a spear. So Mashaha, when he sees this, he makes an interesting statement. He says, I'm going to draw aside and examine this great wonder why this thorn bush, thorny crag, is not burned up. Now the phrase that he uses here is Ath Hamara Aha Hagadal, the wonder, the great. This is not just, you know, this cute little idea of a little bush crackling with a few flames. He would have been, he would have had to have been able to see it from a distance. And also when he saw it, it when he observed this, it created a sense of wonder, a great wonder inside of him. So that he felt compelled to turn aside. And just as he was drawn out of the water, 
by the daughter of Pharaoh. In this time, he's drawn out by the Ruach HaKodesh. Now, I will look at this word for fire. I want this flame of fire. Now, the Ruach HaKodesh is often associated with fire. We've, we've read this passage in Acts, the book of Acts, concerning the day of Pentecost when the Ruach fell like fire and it rested on the followers of Mashiach. Well, uh, the one that I really want to look at is actually from uh, from the uh, the Shem Tov version of the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew, and it's chapter three, verse eleven. And John answered all of them. He said, "Behold, I truly baptize you in the days of repentance, but another comes mightier than I." And the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to unfasten. He will baptize you with the fire of the Ruach HaKodesh. Now, the, the, those words of the is not in the text. It's not in the Hebrew. It actually, fire Ruach HaKodesh. So we see in the Gospel of Matthew that the Ruach HaKodesh is associated with fire. Now, so uh, the Ruach is herself that flame of fire. That's what that's my position. So he makes this interesting statement. I will draw aside and I will examine this great wonder why this thorny Craig is not burned up. Now the uh, he uh, he's he's drawn in by the rock. And I'm just gonna I'm going to read a few scriptures. This also comes from the gospels. This is from the gospel of John, and this is actually comes from the Peshitta Bible, which is a translation that comes to us from an Aramaic uh, uh, manuscript. And so in John 6, 44, we're, we're seeing Yeshu or Yeshua or Yashawa. He's speaking. He says, no man can come to me unless the father who sent me shall attract him and I will raise him at the last day. And also in John 6, 64, it says again, this is again from the Peshitta, uh, and he, that is Yeshua, he said to them, on account of this, I tell you, I told you that no man can come to me unless it be given to, given to him of my father. And in John 14, 6 through 7, uh, Yeshua, or Yeshu, says to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me unless, cometh unto the Father unless by me. So, uh, just as Meshachah was drawn out of the water, uh, he's drawn in with this great wonder. Now, I think that it's a foreshadowing. He, he, he's going to bring them back to this mountain of Allah Hayam. And in, later on in uh, Shamalath, it, uh, this is later on down. It says that Yahuwah, the Everlin, he descended the mountain in, in fire. Now, um, when next we have Yahawaha, he saw and Ha'alahayam called out. Now, uh, then he said, and, and the question is, who said? Well, the last person who talked was identified as Ha'alahayam. And then he continued, we assume that it is the same speaker. And Mashaha hid his face, for he feared to gaze upon 
Ha Elahayam. And and why am I why am I pointing this out? I want you to understand that it's not just Yahawaha or Malach Yahawaha that's here in the scene. The Alahayam the Father is here. Yahawaha is here, the Son, and also in the flame of fire, the Ruach HaKadosh. So we have all of these who are present in speaking. Now, I'm going to tackle uh, something that ca has caused a great deal of confusion. Um, it is about the names. The names of Father, the name of the Son, the name and character of the Son. Many English translations have used, they, they took out the Hebrew and the, the transliterations that they did put in weren't done very well. And they inserted this God and Lord and they used them indiscriminately. So people have, have rightly so, been confused into thinking that, that this, is, this is the Father that has worked on, but I'm going to try to tackle some of this confusion. Now, the first one that we're going to, we're going to tackle is the word all, which is alf lamad, all. Now, this is, uh, in the paleo, it carries the idea of a powerful leader or a chief shepherd. Now, this is, now the person that's designated by this term all, it just means someone who has power and authority. Humans can carry this. Humans can carry this. If you notice, uh, Mashaha, that is Moses, was called Al-Mashaha, which means that he, he was given, divinely given, power and authority. Aaron, later on, you will see Aaron called uh, Al-Aharon. And even Pharaoh, a couple of times, he's designated as Al-Pharaoh. And um, this is the king of, of course, Mitzrayim. And so you, you understand that that is a title. All is a title. And it means mighty one. A mighty one. Now the next one that I want to look at is Allah Hayam. Now, uh, when I, I'm trying to designate that it's father, the father, uh, I put it in all caps but of course in Hebrew there's there's no capitalization so I'm just doing this to give clarity to try to give clarity uh, I want you to know that that um, this is the word that's pronounced in the modern Israeli Hebrew is Elohim uh, Allah Hayam there are Strong's dictionary and many other dictionaries just calls it powers just powers and Father is Allah Hayam. The son is an Allah Hayam. Usually when I put that it's the son, I have a capital A and then the rest in lowercase. But there are many, many Allah Hayam. I try to put all that in lowercase. Uh, there is even a council or assembly of the Allah Hayam. Now I want to read to you, this is, this is a translation from uh, the book of Psalms, and this is actually, I feel like it's, it's, um, it's Yahawaha uh, as the chief Alahayam. Uh, he is in this assembly of the Alahayam. 
and he's sort of giving them their orders, if you will, what they're supposed to be doing. So this is Psalm 82, a Mizmor of Asaph. And it says, Alahayam takes a stand, that means he's established, in the assembly of the mighty ones. He judges in the midst of the Alahayam. Until when will you judge depravity, iniquity, and wickedness? How long will you distort justice and accept the face of wicked criminals, the guilty, the condemned, and lift him up? Salaha. Judge the powerless, the feeble, whose strength hangs by a thread, and the wretched, poor, the orphan, bereaved of father, and those suffering want, render to them justice. Cause the weak to escape smoothly, and snatch the oppressed from the hand of the unrighteous ones. They do not acquire knowledge. They do not understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of Arats totter and shake. I, even I, have declared, as you are Alahayam and sons of Al-Yawan, all of you, but like Adam you shall die. And like one of the noble ones, you shall fall. Rise up, Alahayam. Judge Ha'arat, for you shall receive an inheritance among the nations. So, uh, so the son, Alahayam, he's judging among this assembly of the Alahayam. And we also have, of course, we, we noticed in Bereshah, we have but the, the Benuyah, Alahayam, or the sons of Alahayam. Now, the crimes of Genesis 6 were committed by the Benuya Alahayam. Now, uh, I'm going to bring up something. Uh, this is from the book of Deuteronomy. It says in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, it says, uh, I think it's verse 8, when uh, Al Yawan, or the Most High, received as an inheritance the nations. In separating the sons of Adam, he established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the Benuyah Al, or the sons of Alahayam, or sons of the Mighty Ones. Now, if you look in most of your English translations, I think the RSV is one of the ones that does not say this, but most of them, most English translation will say, according to the number of the sons of Yasharel. Now, uh, Michael Heiser actually does a really good teaching on this. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says the sons of Alahayam, or sons of the Mighty Ones. Uh, it was changed. The Miseretic was changed to read sons of Yasharel. So, uh, like I said, the, there are many Alahayam. I mean, you, you think about how many deities Egypt had. Think about how many deities that the Greek had and the Romans. And unfortunately, a lot of these things represent an actual entity that existed. And uh, there are also, besides these Banuya Alahayam, we also have um, Alahayam Aharayam. And these are secondary Alahayam. These are ones who followed after. They're second rate Alahayam. They don't equal up to 
Yah, uh, Allah Hayyam the Father, or Allah Hayyam the Son, who is Yaha Uaha. Now, um, another name that is also has been used as a tool for division and contention, and it is Yaha Uaha. Now, this name comes from the word uh, Ha Uaha, which means simply to breathe. He will breathe. And it is synonymous with Hayaha. And we see that in Exodus 3.14. We said it's Ahayaha, Ashar, Ahayaha. So Hayaha is synonymous. It's equal to Hayaha. And it, it means to exist. It is also uh, the word uh Ha-Ha-Waha is related to Ah-Waha, which means uh, to turn aside, to lodge, to settle down, or to desire. So, uh, like I said, we're currently in this, this season of polarization. You have people who are questioning the identity of Yaha-Waha, and you have these, these polar opposites. And they're saying, who is he? What is his character? And as, as Noah said, you know, there are people who are, who are out there who are um, saying, you know, he's, he's not the good guy. But, of course, my position is, is that Yahawaha is the son of Allah. Now, Pharaoh asked, who is Yahawaha? the ever-living, and why should I listen to his voice to send out Yasharal? I know not Yahawaha, and also I will not send away Yasharal. Um, and so many people, even today, are they are stumbling and they're falling away because they do not listen to Yahawaha. They do not know his character. They, they confuse his character with that of these other Alahayam. Like I said, those those Banuya Alahayam, they're the ones who committed the crimes in Genesis 6. And these Alahayam Akarayam, these are these who are the ones who followed after. These are the second rate Alahayam. And they are entities, very, very powerful entities, and people worship them. People worship them even today. But of course, they are not the Alahayam of Yasharel. And we're going to see this epic battle between Yahawaha and these deities of Mitzrayim. Now, um, I meant to say this earlier, the word Mitzrayim, it means in the paleo, bitter enemy from across the sea. And they're they're characterizing what the what these are to them. These Egyptians are bitter enemies across the sea, and so uh, these these Alahayam of Mitzrayim are their enemies of Yahawaha. And uh, uh, there was a young lady tonight in our pre presentation chat, and um, we were I was actually told her I'd be bringing up this one, 
some people say, well, how can it be? Doesn't this verse, I get a lot of this, doesn't this verse say or that verse say? A lot of times these verses that seem to be contradicting Yahawaha as the Savior, it's because they're, they're kind of mistranslated. Uh, one such is in Isaiah 44 and 6. Like this, declares Yahawaha, Malach of Yasharel, that's king of Yasharel, and his kinsman redeemer. So he's the kinsman redeemer of Yasharel. Yahawaha Zabaoth, that's Yahawaha of the armies. I, the first, I, the last, and without me, there is not present any Alhaya. So you cannot reach the Father without Yahawaha. And even these secondary, you know, Alhayyam, even they are dependent upon him because he is their chief. Um, and so he actually says, my firstborn is Yashorel. I think you did a study, did you not, on it uh, about that, that Yashorel, Jacob was created first. And so, you know, that's that's a powerful statement. He's my firstborn. Uh, let him go. Let my 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 firstborn go, that he may serve me in the wilderness. So he reveals himself in fire on Mount Sinai in this thorny crag. And it's I wish you could what I'm picturing in my mind this thorny crag, but also you've got this flame of fire and it's it's pointing upwards. It's pointing upwards. And so you've got all three of them there. You've got the Father, Allah Hayyam. You've got the Son, Yahawaha. And I hope you saw that play of conversation. And we have, the, of course, the Ruach HaKodesh. And she's associated with fire. And so um, so I, I, I hope I've kind of cleared up some of the, I feel like I've taking up too much time but I, I i did want to this is a great place to do it ahayaha means i will exist ashar because ahayaha i will exist so as you say father Allah Hayyam, um people want to put him on a box they want to make him very small and I feel like that's that's one of the things with the bush. It's like trying to make Allah Hayyam, trying to make Yahawaha very small, make him small. But it it says specifically it was a great wonder. So I feel like uh, Yahawaha being the son actually makes the father greater and more intense than what I ever thought of. When I thought that, you know, Jehovah was the father. I feel like there's so much more going on here. Um, so, well, give it to you. I feel like I've had more than my fair share. But no, this, this is perfect. I mean, we're coming up toward the, to the end. And um, the, you know, people every week. Every week, I get these emails, and they have all these questions they want to know from Pamela, from Pamela, you know, the translator. And this is great that people, you know, are able to see you and hear, you know, uh, where you're 
where your thoughts are in this document. And what you brought up tonight with the, the, we were talking beforehand in the, the pre-show on Discord uh, about this idea of Yahuwah always being the son, that, you know, Yahweh, Jehovah, you know, so on and so forth is not the father as is advertised to us. That's the way I was raised. You know, that's the way we were all raised to think that and how this comes into so much more clarity now. And I had mentioned that the big one for me is what you had mentioned in Deuteronomy, where it said that the the, the land, the, the earth was divided up amongst the 70 and that Yahuwah gets Israel, right? And I always used to look at that like and go, wait, wait, wait. So the father gets, he creates everything and then he gets this little section of land. Like and when I saw, you know, Yahuwah and that, that you know, this is the son, I'm like, okay, boom, this makes so much more sense. But uh, somebody else mentioned in the pre-discussion, pre uh, and he was absolutely right, is that when Yahushua HaMashiach goes and says that Moshe wrote of me, that's where everyone starts freaking out. They start scrambling through the, the Bible. Where Where is where is Yahushua spoken about in here? You know, where, where is he at? And it's like, oh, he's Yahuwah. <laughs> that's who Moshe is speaking about. He's everywhere. He's like in almost every conversation and almost every paragraph. He's just like the whole storyline is him. He, you know, Yahushua HaMashiach is Yahuwah. Uh, so yeah, uh, now Pamela, we've got like 10 minutes left, um, before I like to close shop, I can go a little bit over. Is there anything, um, I can go ahead and read some more or is there anything else you want to, uh, now that was, that was the, that was the main thing that I wanted to tackle was number one about a thorny crag instead of some of the meanings of the world. But I also wanted to, um, I really wanted to to um yeah polly said every time it says the word yeah he is debar yahawaha word yahawaha he's malak yahawaha and when you see that yahawaha is actually the son everything as you say it fell in play into place for me when when i finally came to that realization i didn't come to that realization on my own i feel like the rock uh, led me there and everything fell in place and um, it makes so much more sense you understand what's going on that the in, in a lot of ways it's he goes into Mitzrayim he wants his children he wants his people back these this is my nation this is my inheritance I want them back and of course Pharaoh says I don't I don't know I don't know this guy I don't know who he is, you know, and I'm not letting him go. Um, so that's why I really wanted to to discuss because I'm trying to clear up some of the, the confusion that we've inherited. We've inherited confusion about who the father is, who the son is, um, because of this use of God and Lord and that sort of thing in this generic terms uh, for what is clearly, it's, it's, it's clearly in the manuscripts. It's clearly there in, in the words and it's just been obscured. And, and mm -hmm. I, I feel like it, now's the time the books are being opened up. Now he's, he's revealing himself and he's moving and he's acting and it's, it's, it's exciting times, exciting times. So that's me. That's, that's what I had. So. I um, 
I did, I put out a video earlier this week talking, it was the name of the video was Hellmouth. And uh, it was in my Leviathan studies. And at the end of it, I'm, I'm reading from a chapter from Bezora Nicodemus or the uh, Gospel of Nicodemus. And it was one of those things I'm, you know, I'm reading all these, it, 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 it just gave me chills when it, 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 the whole book talks about Yahushua HaMashiach. But then as he enters Sheol, it says, it says Yahuwah or Yahuwah in the flesh entered Sheol. And it's it's these little things where I, I read these things for years and I just kept, there was like this, um, you know, the pre-programming in me go, oh, that can't be true. That can't be true. And it must be a reference to something else. like he's a representative of Yahuwah or Yahuwah or whatever, right? But then it's one of those things where like, you need just take it at its word. And I don't want to accuse him when like they're not taking its word, but I think you know we really were all pre-programmed into this where we 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 read these biases into it and we have to kind of recognize that these are biases and you just take it at its word, you're like, okay, that's not actually what it says, you know. Um and you know Pamela Pamela is the one that uh, she I think I gave this story before. I'll go ahead and give this now. We'll just close on this. Uh, for everyone waiting for me to finish the Torah portion, there's a little bit left. I'm just going to pick it up where we left off next week and just kind of and, and go through it because there's some important stuff I want to talk about in there. Uh, we got a couple minutes left. And it was uh, the story goes that I was having a conversation uh, with like two or three people within one week where they brought this up to me. They're like, hey, no, what do you think about? Um, uh, Yahuwah actually being Yahusha, uh, Hamashiach, the Messiah. And I'm like, no, 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 he, he, he always the father. Like, no, there's no way, no. And, uh, and, and then they kind of give the point to me. But, you know, when I, I've learned that when like two or three of these things from different sources that are not connected all come at one time, sometimes that's like, I need to listen. I need to stop and go, okay, this thing keeps coming up. I need to listen to this. So I approach Pamela on the side. Because Pamela has become like a kind of a, a paleo Hebrew research partner, and I and I and I go, okay, Pamela, don't don't freak out or anything. I'm not saying this, but you know, like I'm hearing these, you know, actually these people actually came to my house actually, and they were sitting in my back and their porch and they're talking to me about this, and I was like, you know, there's these people out there saying that you know Yahuwah is actually the son and uh, he's not the father and i'm not saying that but what do you you know and she actually just she she just said well that's what i believe I'm like what i almost fell out of my chair um i'm like why didn't you tell me this you know and uh and so that's when we brought her on uh with michael last april the video's still up and i asked them questions and they kind of went through michael at that time was just investigating this i don't even know where he's at right now um and i was at the fence then but uh you know i became convinced soon afterwards so uh, with that, I think we're going to close tonight. And uh, again, thank you everyone for coming out to this event and uh, listening in. And I, I love that, uh, that Pamela was here to, to talk. I would love to bring on more guests uh, week after week. It's actually hard finding people that, um, you know, we're kind of a like mind that we can come in and, and talk together. So uh, thank you, Pamela, for this. And she is, uh, you, of course, uh, I won't speak about you in the third person. You are welcome to uh, come on anytime you want. This is your baby. This is your translation. I'm excited to get this out. Uh, Exodus, this book should be available 
for sale maybe in the next week. I mean, really soon, right around the corner. We're going to get this for sale, and you guys can pick it up in the store, help support Pamela and her translation. She still has three more books of the Torah to finish, but she finished the first two. And, um, yeah, so thank you, Pamela, for coming on. Thank you, Noel. Thank you for having me, and thank you for this opportunity. And I thank everyone who who were listening and Thank you for being open-minded and not coming at me with pitchforks and torches and things like that. I appreciate that you listen, and even if you don't agree, that you listen respectfully. And that means a lot. I, I think that's what sets the Unexpected Cosmology, Cosmology Fellowship apart, is the fact that they're, they're really kind and they're, they're really open-minded willing to listen to someone's position uh when they uh, <laughs> when they uh speak polly says he's sharpening his pitchfork now <laughs> oh polly <laughs> all right well um good night everyone shabbat shalom and uh, i'll be stopping this video and then in about five minutes i'm going to start up uh the late late show tonight i'll be uh, finishing, hopefully y'all willing, I'll be finishing uh, my reading through Sea Serpents. So uh, see you guys over there and good night, everyone. Good night. Good night.